there, and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined tonight by Scott. Hello. And tonight we're talking about some 1970s science fiction films. The original idea behind this was just to do some classic sci-fi, uh, and then started putting the list together, found out that actually there's an awful lot of interesting stuff simply from the 70s alone. It's a pretty good decade for films in many genres. Indeed. Uh, and we've covered a, a few really interesting 70s films before. Chinatown and the conversation spring particularly to mind. Yes. Uh, this time, as I say, looking at 1970s sci-fi in particular, though, we've got some, quite a, f- a mix. We've got some kind of ponderous existential ones. We have some, well, I'm honestly not sure what Fantastic Planet is, but <laughs> a weird animated French one. We have a George Lucas one. No, not that one. <laughs> uh, we have a film with Leonard Nimoy. And no, not that one. <laughs> And a film by Robert Wise, and also, no, not that one, with Ro- Ro- that's also not the Spock one. <laughs> uh, and a couple of films from a particularly highly regarded director who only made five feature films, and or at least in his native country, and we're doing two of them. So that may be interesting. Um, I should have prepared this in talk, because slayer waffling, so we should probably just start. <laughs> Can't do off-the-cuff stuff at all. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Anything to say before we begin, Scott? No, not in particular. Just I've seen about half of these before. I think the other half uh, were new to me. It's a couple of these that I've been really looking to try and get to see for quite some time. So, yes, uh, t- timely. Uh, well, I guess not timely at all. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was a interesting little selection. I was uh, pleased to, to run through. And, uh, yes. It's a timely 40 to 50 years after they came out. It's as close as we're going to get, yes. Yeah, I'm the same. I mean, half of these I'd seen before, I think, yeah, mm. roughly. And a couple... A couple of just vaguely interested when I was looking at for some lists of stuff to cover and a couple that I'd really wanted to see. And let's hope we can find something interesting to talk about here. We should probably begin doing that then, I guess. Yes. Uh, I'll do that then. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Based on Michael Crichton's 1969 novel, The Andromeda Strain tells the story of a group of scientists trying to learn about the nature of a space organism, thoughtfully brought to Earth by the US government in their attempts to discover new biological weapons. After the satellite carrying the virulent wee beastie crashes in New Mexico, killing the entire population of a small town, save for one infant and one old man, and then also kills the first team trying to recover it, That'll serve them right for trying to approach the town at that always awful and unconvincing hour, day for night. (laughs) Dr Jeremy Stone, Arthur Hill, recovers the satellite and survivors and takes them all to Wildfire, the top-secret bio-research centre built to his design. There he's joined by a handful of other distinguished scientists, given top-secret clearance, and tasked with identifying, categorising and neutralising the minuscule space invader. I imagine the Andromeda strain could test the patience of some as it takes place, for the most part, in a series of sterile rooms and laboratories and features numerous sequences of scientists methodically explaining, then performing investigative procedures. But I find it deeply satisfying. Not least because, while narrative and drama necessarily accelerate the sequence of events, it maintains a very strong degree of truthiness. Indeed, it has been praised for its veracity by groups working in infectious diseases. 
On top of this, director Robert Wise maintains a strong sense of tension throughout. Though this tension would have been near constant without the unnecessary framing device, used only a few times but to the film's detriment each time, of the incident being considered in retrospect from a Senate hearing. Now, call me crazy if you must, but I feel the fear that Andromeda, as the beastie becomes codenamed, might wipe out huge swathes of population is rather undermined by knowing there were at least enough people left alive afterwards to hold a hearing and discuss such important matters as a paper jam and a fax machine. <laughs> Still, at least Y shows a much defter touch here than he did when he again attempted sci-fi at the end of the decade. 43 unending hours of model shots. <laughs> That'll do me. V'ger needs a goddamn edit. <laughs> but I digress. I like the Andromeda strain a lot. It is good. You should watch it. Yes, I agree. One of the ones I saw actually fairly young, I think. Uh, I certainly would have still been in school at the time. And I don't know if it was my first exposure to the sort of methodically paced 70s uh, film, which we'll, <laughs> we'll see a fair amount of uh, as we go through <laughs> this. Um, yeah, there's a... You can't imagine this floating in multiplexes today, but I think that's probably too. The multiplex is a loss. It's uh, all works pretty well. It's um, you hesitate to say hard science fiction, but it's at least fairly solid science fiction. Um, it's not. Yeah, it's it's not hard science fiction in that it's not. Well, you know, I just suppose it is in a way hard science fiction, isn't it? It's it is quite. It's as hard as you could probably put into a film without it just being incredibly dull. Uh, <laughs> I think um, the only thing that ever annoyed me, it only at the time, and it annoyed me a bit more now, was the whole um, gimmick of the one of the scientists having a, a very peculiar form of photosensitive epilepsy. Yeah, but as as a couple of major plot points, and that's just that seemed cheap <laughs> at the time, um, and it's a. A shame that they do it with, uh, with a character that's otherwise you know, really quite memorable and um, particularly for female characters of that era. Yeah, exactly. Um, particularly strong. And uh, having that as a kind of weird Achilles heel is just a bit weird. Yeah, um, it's perhaps unnecessary because, I mean, it would have been enough that she missed something simply because they were all exhausted. Yeah. They were burning the candle at both ends and then cut the candle in half so they'd have two extra ends to burn. Um, <laughs> and... Yes, yeah, so it's perhaps unnecessary from that point of view. The only thing I can think that might be a reason for that being there, that might be a legitimate reason rather than it's just it was a bad idea, mm-hmm. is because they do mention the fact that had she mentioned it, various prejudices and perhaps because she's a woman too, um, would have barred her from yeah. any government or something like that. Yes, uh, a different time, I guess. Uh, perhaps that's the... A bit more realistic of a concern back then, I guess. But uh, yes, but still, I mean, that's a, it's for the most part unnecessary. Simply because, as I said, there was they didn't really need to give any other reason for her missing that thing because yet yeah, they're just all exhausted. Yes, yes. You know, the human beings can only concentrate for a certain amount of time, and even if they wanted to keep the the scene at the end when she's having the seizure and people are thinking she's infected you could simply have had her <laughs> drop down from exhaustion or something yeah and still people think oh it's the the andromeda has escaped we're going to die because they think that's why she's collapsed yeah you know there's it didn't actually need that extra level of epilepsy for, <laughs> for some yeah. reason <laughs> Um, but that that is really the only bone I have with the film, for the most part. There's perhaps some effects work, like the laser 
escape sequence at the end, which perhaps doesn't look quite so good these days, but um, you know, doesn't look too bad. Um, and it's uh, yeah, for the most part, it's a consistently intriguing uh, look at infection, uh, which yeah. has been sort of most of these films that we're talking about. You can you can pick something up, you know, fairly recently that's kind of been influenced more or less directly by all the things we're going to talk about today. I think um, this one's probably, I guess, maybe closest to something like um, Soderbergh's Contagion from a few years back. Uh, something like that is perhaps a yeah, yeah. broadly similar. Um, and or also- um, I should not know. Sorry, I was, um, I, another film came to mind, and I realised I actually know that doesn't um, have that much of that. I don't think there's much investigation. I thought, but what I was thinking of was what was the film with Rory Cochran? Where he's trapped in a house and he's trying to keep the the virus he's out, but actually it turned out that he's created an incubator for himself. That's, um, Is it just like outside or inside or something? It's got a name like that, I think. Yes, another one you think of, but I can't think of the name. Oh, it's not important. Um, I think. Oh, at your door, or some last bit. Is it at, mm. at your door? At your doorstep? At your door? But again, I can't even remember the name so clearly. I can't remember the details. I think perhaps it isn't. Um, isn't an analogue, but a contagion absolutely is, yeah. It's right at your door, I think right is the word. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I may I may have um, thrown you off your stride there somewhat. Um Yes, no. Um so it's it, it I guess it's been it has influenced a few films going on. For my mind, not as many as it probably should. I, I like in a more slower paced investigative stuff, so yes, that yeah. I would I would heartily recommend seeing uh this and also seeing that people steal more from this in the future. Yeah. I mean I like it does suffer a bit from its seventies setting in the way that some of it looks. It it does scream seventies. Yeah. But there are I just and the the xenon hair removal thing. With its daft punk helmets, yes, which I like, but I'm not convinced works as a, as a real thing. But I mean, it looks really interesting. Just the idea of like they've got the different sterile rooms, they have the different lifts for bringing things down. There's the it's like they've thought about it to actually like how would you do this if it were real? And I like that. Yes, I like the thought that's clearly gone into it, which again perhaps makes that epilepsy thing even more unnecessary because they put so much thought into the rest of it. Yeah. Well, I thoroughly enjoy this film. I love this kind of the procedural, just methodical nature of it, as you say too. But you mentioned the lasers at the end. That's possibly the other real beef I have with it is that these lasers are there for if there's like a rodent or something escaping. Okay, um, I understand why they're there, uh, and they're meant to be a danger because they could hurt this guy. Okay, I'm not sure why getting shot in the cheek with a laser makes him all woozy and have funny <laughs> yeah. vision. There's like, a poison laser, as you yeah, understand. <laughs> Would it not just hurt? <laughs> but it's, I'm not sure why it's made him all like he's suffering some sort of effect and fallout or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's it, yeah. You're right, it's, it's like a bit of a point in fallout. It's, I mean, there should have been a wee um, symbol of a man flashing the bottom right of the screen showing which part of his head had been poisoned. Yes. <laughs> And offering the option to put a stim pack in them. <laughs> this is... It's only the second time I've seen it. I didn't actually see it for the first time until really quite recently. And even having watched it twice in relatively quick succession, it's, it's just as rewarding the second time. It's just a really solidly made film. There aren't many holes in it. Yeah. Um, I mean, that thing I mentioned about the fax machine, it's maybe a wee bit manufactured... 
But again, you could have just made that a wee drama point that they weren't getting messages without having to have the framing here. And that's the only real issue I have with it is why does it have this framing? It, it adds nothing. In fact, it clearly detracts from the film. Yeah, it's it only ever seems to get used for explaining things that were fairly obvious anyway. From yeah, on, so that, yeah the most part, slightly yeah. strange decision. Yes. Yeah, uh, but yeah. so we're off to a good start though. Um, both, I think, thoroughly recommend the Andromeda strain. Yes. At the risk of giving away my thoughts, so I think we don't move forward quite so successfully. <laughs> Back in the 70s, Scott, there was this fella, fella by the name of Lukowski. Jorge Lukowski. <laughs> uh, yes, so we're, we are going on to talk about THX 1138, which I could have sworn I'd seen back in my formative years, but it might have just been the short film it's based on, or perhaps it was just a still of these stark visuals. Um, at any rate, I couldn't really remember much from the film apart from those visuals, and as I came to type up my notes for this, I couldn't remember all that much of it apart from those visuals, but well, let's crash on and hope it comes back to me. We are introduced to the overwhelmingly brightly lit, white-painted dystopia of a few centuries hence, where life is very different indeed. A totalitarian party controls all people working in subterranean factories, drugged to the eyeballs to repress your identity and humanity, with even your name assigned by the state, a seemingly random collection of letters and numbers like our THX 1138, here played by Robert Duvall. He finishes a shift building the unflappable android police enforcers he will soon be menaced by, and returns to his habitation, stopping only to pray and give Confession to the party-approved deity Om. Uh, he's feeling an odd and unusually unfocused because, it turns out, his flatmate, Maggie McComey's LUH3417, has been fiddling with their meds, doing whatever the inverse of slipping him a mickey is, leading to them rediscovering human emotions and drives. Such novelty, however, does reduce his efficiency on the production line, leading to their transgressions being discovered and THX thrown in jail, which seems to be the same blank white void that Apple did their product launch videos in for most of the past few decades. Rejecting the drug-based rehabilitation, he breaks out alongside Donald Pleasance's delusional rebel leader and Don Pedro Colley's character, who's apparently a hologram, and they go on the lam through this strange dystopia pursued by them, their android cops, with THX ultimately heading for the surface for life amongst the shell dwellers, whatever they are precisely supposed to be. Now, THX 1138 has of course lived on in popular culture, not primarily due to its success, it saw very little at the time, or even its inherent qualities, but because it's a George Lucas joint and George Lucas made Star Wars, perhaps you have heard of it. Uh, But the question that remains for this podcast is whether or not this has much value as anything more than a DVD extra on Star Wars box set. And, well... I suppose it does, but there's a bunch of qualifiers you need to that. Um, in a number of ways, it's a really concise summation of Lucas's strengths and weaknesses as a storyteller. Visually, it's quite remarkable indeed, and remains so to this day. Narratively, there's not a great deal to it, but it's, I guess, solid enough for what it needs to be. Uh, the genius of it is in the details of the world, with many little throwaway lines and concepts that hint at something really interesting that could be explored. It doesn't explore them here, of course, and as the expanded universe of Star Wars perhaps proved, it probably shouldn't. Uh, But being left with uh, questions about the party and its seeming co-opting of all forms of totalitarianism, fascism, communism and religion and capitalism, and whatever's happened to the planet that means the surface is deemed inhabitable, or if that's just another lie to control the populace and who exactly is doing the controlling, uh, all the best aspects of uh, speculative fiction here, providing questions and letting you answer them yourself. Uh, But 
if you're on the mood for answers to be served you on a plate however THX 1138 doesn't deliver and to be honest if you wanted the bare minimum of information to be served to you to have the basis of anything other than total guesswork for answering these questions yourself well you're not getting that either uh, so there's a lot to both like and criticise about the world building of the piece uh, so I guess that that just about comes out in a wash uh, it deserves some recognition apart from his just marginally more famous works um, it should be noted that George Lucas couldn't help George Lucasing this uh, with a director's cut that balances out some really quite impressive restoration and cleanup work with some abominable CG enhancements that stick out like a sore thumb and so yes again a fairly concise summation of Lucas's strengths and weaknesses yes I sound like you're a little bit more negative on it than I am but uh, yeah I can't I can't say I'm overwhelmingly positive about it either you say a little bit <laughs> this is the second shortest film um, in a selection of films, some of which are quite substantial in length Mm -hmm. and this was by far the one that felt like longest to watch Mm. and while watching, one of the thoughts I had was, wow, George Lucas actually made a film worse than Revenge of the Sith? (laughs) Colour me shocked and or impressed, I'm not sure which is the appropriate emotion (laughs) Um, yeah, I did not get on with this film at all I mean, I'd been, I'd never seen, I've seen like clips and stuff and, and Star Wars documentaries and stuff, it's very regularly referenced um, there's even people know there's a, even a stormtrooper in uh, Star Wars called DHX 1138 mm. in reference to this, and it became the special effects. Or, and what do THX do? It's a sound mastering, I guess, isn't it? And, yeah, and sort of mastering and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yes, yeah, so his company named after that. So this will be interesting, at least. I'll give it a go. And I actually watched. Electronic Labyrinth THX 1138 4EB first hmm. uh, which is the student film that George Lucas made at USC um, but this is an expanded version of now when I watched Electronic Labyrinth THX 1138 4EB what a mouthful <laughs> uh, at first I thought wow this is a student film because it is in every way possible a student film and that was all I could think about. Then I watched THX 1138 and I thought, actually, that first one was only 15 minutes long. It was great. <laughs> I mean, it's got a similar idea. And it's like there's a man running away from the authorities. Although it, it ends with him. He, he gets away and then they just decide, oh, we're not going to fall on, but we'll pretend he didn't get away. We'll tell people he died. Hmm. Okay. And there are some frustrations to THX 1138 in it. There are clearly some He's kind of reaching for some kind of interesting ideas. Um, he's clearly got something to say. Like there's the weird fact that the chase for Robert Duval stops because, well, they run out of money. Or they had a certain budget for chasing people. They run yeah. out of money and that's it. So it feels like, yeah, he's trying to make some sort of comment, maybe on capitalism or something there, you know, before he became the billionaire. Yes. Uh but it doesn't really work because I don't understand what anybody is doing or why. Yeah, they go to visit the the magic Jesus booths with the big pictures of Jesus. Yeah, which, I mean, I've I've seen that particular painting before, but I forget which artist it's by. But it's like one of a number of particularly famous representations of Jesus Christ. Um, it's in there, even though they they give it a different name here. When it keeps on talking about like buy, consume and stuff right? again, feels like you're trying to say something there George, but you haven't attached that to the fact that nobody in this buys anything nobody has any possessions 
Yes. <laughs> How are these people supposed to consume when they, they live in pure white cubes with the most basic furniture? They don't buy anything. They don't have any different clothes. They don't even buy food. <laughs> Again, it's indicative of George Lucas, Scott. He's, it's not really joined up. Yes. There, there are ideas <laughs> that don't really work with other things. And you mentioned the hologram, and I'm glad you did, because I thought that was quite a strange thing. You're spending a fair bit of time with this character who either believes he's a hologram and wants to convince Robert Duvall he's a hologram, up until the point apparently he is actually a hologram, and it doesn't make a whole heap of sense. Yes. He just disappears from the car at the end. Also, basic sort of logic things in here. Robert Duvall's lived his entire life inside of this thing, never been anywhere else, but can drive. Okay. Uh, I just... And I wasn't even sure like what it was he was making. I was like, I know there were androids, but were they just the android police? And why were they nuclear? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why were they nuclear policemen? There's no suggestion later on that they're nuclear policemen. They're the perfect shit. But <laughs> I just didn't enjoy it. So I'm kind of frustrated because I thought that every so often there's kind of an interesting idea that mostly it's just a bunch of weird stuff and it's boring. <laughs> um, and I can't talk particularly well about this film because I was just bored as I wanted something to happen oh they've been walking in this white thing for wow like four days now I think (laughs) yeah it should make a lot of sense and Donald Pleasance was his character's so weird in this but I didn't really see there any point in him being weird it was just weird for the sake of being weird no um, I, I tried to trying to find something to hold on to in this film and there was nothing in it for me at all Uh, yes I would say that the least interesting of all the films we're talking about here and uh, I suspect if George Lucas had not gone on to do uh, Star Wars and the like then yeah we wouldn't really be talking about THX 1138 in any capacity or anyone would Yes, um, can't really disagree with anything you're saying. I, I didn't find it quite so dull, which helped. But yes, there's, a, there's, yes, a, there's an awful lot to criticise on it. And, uh, yeah, I think we're more or less saying the same thing. There's, there's, there's ideas in there, but frustratingly, they don't really go into them or really give you anything like enough information to actually say that it's explored any of these ideas. It's just dropped them there and ran away from them and lets you deal with the cleaning up the mess of it. And uh, yeah, uh, somewhat unsatisfying. Yes. Yeah. So I'm just I'm thinking about more of the stuff that well, it's it's like he's had the beginning of an idea and never known quite how to follow through with it. It's like talk about the wee Jesus booths again, right? Um, they all have this picture of Jesus on the wall, and then there's some suggestion later on that they're all video representations of one other picture of Jesus, but it was a static picture. What was the point? Yes, <laughs> had it been like there was like the and um, I was going to say maybe it's just like an effects budget thing or something, but I actually know because all you'd have to have is like projection of an actual person, and it would just be that if it was these people felt like they were getting not just a recorded message, but like somebody was saying something to them, and it was turned out it was that like they were actually just filming some other guy in a room. That would work. They seem to be broadcasting a still image yes. from a television camera. What is the point? It's, there's no joined up thinking in this film yes so my recommendation is if you don't want to watch this instead go and watch um, Equilibrium which deals the same basic plot, plot points uh, but has cool kung fu in it instead 
weirdly, that was exactly what was in my head when I was thinking about that Jubas thing there. It's, it's very much like that. It's, mm. And other films have done, done that sort of idea before as well. It's like you pretend you're God and it's just it's a wee man broadcasting from somewhere. Um, which is why it's even more baffling. It's, it was a still picture. Why are you... No, no. Okay, uh, yeah. This did nothing for me, so I should perhaps move on from, to something else. It might have done something for me. Yes, that something else would be Solaris. So, shooty bangs and pew-pews in spaceships have their place and can certainly be entertaining, but the best science fiction, and especially that which lingers longest in the mind, is that which challenges, or perhaps explores some ethical, philosophical or existential point. Russian director Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris is certainly that, using the setting of Polish author Stanislav Lem's book to explore memory, love, personhood and a whole host of other issues pertinent to his overarching topic of existence. Not that this sat well with Lem though, who didn't much care for Tarkovsky's adaptation and whose own interest was in aliens and the improbability, if not impossibility, of alien beings being capable of understanding one another. Solaris begins with Donatus Banionis' Chris Kelvin, a psychologist, bidding farewell to his father and aunt before leaving Earth to travel to a space station orbiting the mysterious alien world Solaris. Before he goes, he views testimony from many years ago given by his father's, friends, his father's friend Berton, Vladislav Dvorshedsky, I need to brush <laughs> up my Russian pronunciations, to a hearing in which he claimed he saw a number of mysterious things on the ocean planet which the space station orbits, including a giant, slime-covered child. What is it with sci-fi and giant space babies? (laughs) These were dismissed as hallucinations by almost everyone, but there's certainly something going on with the current crew, and it's up to Chris to determine if the Solaris project should continue. On reaching the station, Chris discovers that the crew is... odd. (laughs) Yes, let's go with odd. Or dead, because one of the three crew members is that too. (laughs) There also seem to be unexpected people aboard. Though while Chris is mildly interested in a woman who's wandering about, he seems almost comically uninterested in the little person trying to escape from Dr. Sartorius (laughs) and Atoli Silsnitsyn's laboratory. Perhaps in Russia you don't have curiosity. Curiosity has you. (laughs) That night, Chris receives a visit from one of what the other scientists have named guests. Neutrino-based life forms projected from the sentient ocean below, somehow connected to conscience and taking the form, in Chris's case, of his late wife Harry, Natalia Bondarchuk. This sets the scene for the rest of the film and its discussions and explorations of existence and philosophical musings about love and the ideas of other people. Novo Harry is an incomplete person as she is formed by Solaris solely from Chrissy's memories of her. But she is as real to him as real Harry. Perhaps more so. So the film brings up the questions of do we love another person or do we love our idea of another person? What is real and what is not? And in the end, does it matter when our reality is only our brain's perception and interpretation? There's always a level of abstraction. Uh, this is a nearly three-hour film in which not a lot happens, but I certainly wasn't bored. Tarkovsky used relatively empty and long sections deliberately, intending them to be meditative and forced thoughtfulness and perhaps introspection. That said, though, Solaris consists of two p- 
parts and virtually the entirety of the first part could have been excised with no notable impact in overall film or its themes. Talking of cutting, for films so determined to let the viewers work most of the content out for themselves, the ending is oddly artless as we see that Chrissy's return home is not what it seems. That water's a bit odd. Pretty sure I know what's going on here. <laughs> Slight zoom out to show some telltale clouds. Yep, thought so. Okay. Continued zooming out and spelling out for several minutes. Oh, we're still going, are we? <laughs> okay. Here, would you like this hammer with which to beat me about the head? <laughs> I can't say that I enjoyed Solaris, but I also very much did not not enjoy it. <laughs> Finding it pretty interesting throughout, and at least being engaged enough that my intention, my attention never wavered nor boredom set in. It's an awful lot to unpack in Tarkovsky's film, but I feel this is one I will return to, though I am currently orbiting a planet very far away from the one where this is considered a masterpiece. Not sure what the fuss is about, but I'm open to being fussed out of five. <laughs> Yeah, first time I had seen this version of Solaris, actually. Um, I did see yes, the Soderbergh too. one. Um, well, 2002? Yeah, I suspect Maybe? we saw that at the same time. Yes. Um, yes, um, yeah. and I remember being very nonplussed by that at the time. Yes, uh, and also just, just checked there. It was, apparently it was closer to 90 minutes, so yeah, Soderbergh mm. clearly paced this very differently. But I think part of the kind of slow, methodical, um, contemplative pacing is what makes this a bit more interesting to me than Soderbergh's version of it, at least. Um, and also the fact that it's really not laying hard into any of the science fiction stuff quite so much. I mean, it's, it is there, but much like the other film we're going to talk about, it's not really using that as any kind of much of a driver is really more concerned with the, the more human aspects and the, uh, the kind of point, points you mentioned in your, your review. So um, I I did enjoy this, but again, it's some, it's very hard to talk about and I don't really have the, the tools, both um, philosophical and uh, in most cases sort of mechanical, to talk about it. But uh, I, I guess I liked it. It's it's a very different film to the kind of ones you would see these days. Certainly anything that's got a science fiction label on it, um, but it's a very different experience and I very much appreciated that aspect of it and uh, I would happily go back at some point to watch this again but it's the sort of film I really need to take more notes about and um, to yeah. think about it. It requires a lot of unpacking, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things to process in there both uh, just from the filmmaking language and just the, the general concepts and the uh, psychology that it's trying to get across um, which is uh, so at the moment perhaps a little bit beyond my leaks and comprehension to really explain to you but I would say that I, I, I'd enjoy it I, I can see why a lot of people would really love it um, particularly if you're going back to it a couple of times and sort of getting the you know, <laughs> you know sucked all the marrow out of it um, and I'm open to doing that but uh, yes I, I didn't watch it and immediately start raving that it was the best thing I've ever seen either but I certainly did watch it and go well that was certainly a very different experience to most <laughs> films that I've seen and I appreciate that aspect of it intensely so yes I would certainly recommend everyone give it a go. I have some of the tools required to unpack this, and I'm, I'm actively trying to develop more. <laughs> but there are still a number of films I've seen where, where I can see that those things are in it, and I absolutely do not think they merit further exploration. I don't mm. think they're good. Whereas this one, I do. Yes. So I am happy to go back to this, both with more honed skills, but to hone those skills more with yes. a film like this, because it's, it is... Probably not quite like anything I can recall seeing. Yes. It's contemplative and meditative and 
intriguing and interesting and again yeah I, I'm very far away from seeing this as anything spectacular or masterpiece but it's certainly interesting and I don't know whether I can agree with your points about the Soderbergh version or not Scott because I remember absolutely nothing about it other yes. than I didn't like it <laughs> my skills in terms of reading films and stuff have come on massively since then too so maybe I would feel differently about that um, if I were to see it now mm. it's just I really don't know what else to say about it because it's not got a plot that you can talk about in the real way. A lot of it, it revolves around listening to other people talk about philosophy and stuff, I guess. Yeah. Which sounds like it could be incredibly boring. In this film, I, I didn't find that. I was just like, this is interesting. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I don't know what to say about it because I, I would like to try and get across why I found this um, appealing so that other people might check it out but I, yeah, it's I a find hard, it really hard to express why It's a very hard film to give any kind of capsule review of and yeah. th- that gets across anything like what the film is trying to do or trying to say um, it's it, it's nothing like as straightforward as a lot of um, you know, it's, it's, as as possibly any film that I've seen, this is this is this is up there in terms of complexity of what it's trying to achieve and what it's trying to, what it actually does achieve. It's you know it's uh, it's top tier for that for anything that is you know, you know nominally just a science fiction film about people studying a planet. Um, this is very much not that, and so it's it is very hard to talk about without you know, writing a thesis on it. Um, but it's, I mean, so if you want the really short answer, is it worth watching? I would say yes. So there, there you go. That's that's as, that's, as, that's as far as we'll be drawn on it. Yes, um, really. For one of the films that I really ought to be the most to talk about, it's really hard to talk about it. Certainly for anybody else who hasn't seen it. Yes, <laughs> which is kind of what we're trying to go for here is to try and explain what, to other people why they should see it too. But yes, quite unique, very Indeed. interesting, odd perhaps in some ways um, so I'm not like most sci-fi yes although definitely is sci-fi as compared to the other Tarkovsky film we'll come to mm. later um, which is not here because I thought it was sci-fi because I knew nothing about it basically um, then turns out it's not sci-fi but we'll get to that <laughs> and, and Scott you will talk about La Planète Sauvage um, for some reason in English translated to Fantastic Planet instead of Wild Planet but that one Yes, now insofar as I'm ever 100% sure about any of my memories I am sure I'd not even heard of this film before <laughs> in advance of this podcast so more fill me uh, René Lalou's uh, 1973 La Planet Sausage I think it is, I think that's how you pronounce that one Sa- yeah, Sausage uh, a French-Czech co-production presents a startling animated look at the most peculiar plant indeed uh, for a frame of reference perhaps the most widely popular similar animation look and feel I can think of would be Terry Gilliam's work from Monty Python exactly yeah. that's what I thought of yes, although the tone here is of course rather less humorous um, but if anything more surreal uh, we are introduced to Tiwa who is a young drag girl from a race of hulking titanous blue humanoid aliens with highly advanced technology and weird psychic meditation powers not quite Dr Manhattan but getting there for all you Watchmen fans out there while out playing one day, she comes across an orphaned infant wild om that she cajoles her parents into letting her keep with the promise that she will house train it and feed it and walk it and so on. Oms, by the way, are humans, not the deity from THX 1138. 
for such as Yam, I think it would be, the world of Fantastic Planet, where some Oms are raised as pets with a remote control collar to prevent them scampering off as Tiwa fits to the infant that she names Terror, while some live wild as tribals in the often bizarre and dangerous environments of Yam, occasionally culled as pests and frequently tormented for fun by younger drags. Drags age much more slowly than Oms, so before long Terror has grown to a rebellious adolescent who has been teaching himself with the telepathic tutoring device that was intended for Tiwa. He soon makes a break for freedom, tutoring doohickey in tow, and makes contact with the tribe, who initially keep him at arm's length, viewing him as an outsider and a possible spy before eventually his knowledge leads to them avoiding a purge, and in what's admittedly a bit of a leap, invading a disused drag space facility, where they repurpose that deck to escape to the planet's moon, which is the actual titular fantastic planet, I suppose it would be in terms of this translation, uh, where further revelations await that could see a peace brokered between the races. Now, Fantastic Planet is, on the narrative surface, at least a very strange fruit, uh, all backed by a psychedelic jazz soundtrack with an animation style that's decidedly non-traditional, certainly as viewed from today. It's a visually imaginative and impressive world, which, if anything, only suffers from not being explored enough. Uh, Boiled down and bullet-pointed, you could, I suppose, argue that the overall narrative and even the exploration of the characters in the world is overly rushed, and there's not really a lot of of counter to that argument in a 70-minute film. It certainly feels like it could easily sustain a mini-series, at least. But the flip side of all this is that there's certainly never a dull moment, and the oddball visuals and concepts are thrown at you in such quick succession that it's dizzying, in a good way indeed. Um, It is, I think, more concerned with making an overall allegory, which I've seen uh, claimed to be about animal rights, which I suppose works, but it's rather more literal uh, than the points on colonialism and slavery that came to mind when I was watching it. Um, It works on all of those levels, although admittedly not while saying anything more obvious than these are bad, but, well, this was, as far as I understand, still aimed at a young teen audience. I suppose as best a summary as I, I can give is that it's narratively a bit immature, but visually, and in terms of its imagination and overall concept, it's fairly sophisticated, and it's certainly worth a mere 70 minutes of your lifespan. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not convinced that I enjoyed this. With the caveat that I have barely slept in a week, <laughs> um, unfortunately, with not even a hint of exaggeration there, so my attention span has not been fantastic preparing for this it's it's certainly interesting and striking very much who I thought of when I was looking at this was Terry Gilliam mm. with maybe a hint of something like a Moorin book Stanzinger yes <laughs> and there's sort of strange quirky things there like the sort of long nosed bird thing that's in a cage that's using its nose to catch these other flying animals, mm. but then just killing them yes. and seeming to be delighting in it, not, <laughs> not for food or anything. And there's lots of like odd things going on in the background like that. I, like you, Scott, absolutely saw it as an allegory for colonialism and slavery and that sort of thing, and, and absolutely not like animal rights at all. Yes. <laughs> so you see, that, it's a bit on the nose, if that was the yeah, that, That's the most surface level reading, yes. possibly, to the point where I didn't even notice that one. It's like, yeah, no. It's... <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that that's that's not in there. No, <laughs> uh, it's yeah, it's a striking film. I'm not quite sure what to make of it though. Certainly, the fact that it's only seventy two minutes is probably not to its credit. It might need a bit more exploration of absolutely yes. the world and the philosophies and stuff. And I suspect the reason it's seventy two minutes. Is it's clearly the animation style is clearly a massively intensive one, so therefore yes. expensive and time consuming. Uh, because it's 
it's a kind of kind of pencil drawn look, but it's all it's like clearly stuff that would take a long time to render for one frame. Yeah. Let alone many. Yeah, and it's like really detailed backgrounds and things. So I suspect it's sort of monetary or either some sort of budget you can say whether that budget is time or money is why it's as short as it is I would guess because mm-hmm. it feels like it's got more to say about I guess it all sort of ties into the the slavery and colonialism thing about not wanting to accept knowledge from people that were like the masters that sort of thing but like whether you should do that and what you what use you can actually make of it and stuff and then trying to get along together feels like it, it didn't really have the space to explore it as much as I would like it to have done. Yeah, yeah. And then just spent too long with weird, massive dancing statues with goldfish balls on her head. It's quite an odd film, is what I'm saying. It's, it's um, been quite interesting. It's probably worth looking at just because it, it's a really quite easy watch because it is only 72 minutes. Mm-hmm. I suspect most people like me and like you, Scott, had never heard of this. I certainly hadn't. Um, before I was doing research for this but I wanted something a bit different I thought, oh an animated mm-hmm. 1970s sci-fi thing that'll be interesting it's certainly different uh, I can't yeah. think of anything I've seen that's like this um, say, I, I wish it had explored a bit more um, but uh, at 70 minutes you can't really complain it's uh, certainly doing enough interesting things to be worth that amount of your time so yeah yeah yeah. I, I would seek out it's, um, it's had Blu-ray releases and stuff so it's I was going to say it's been popular enough to warrant that, but then again, there's been some weird stuff released on Blu-ray, so yes. that's not <laughs> actually any guide. What I suspect is that most people listening will not have seen anything that looks quite like it. Yes. So yeah. even for animation fans, it might be worth looking at. There's not that much I can immediately call to mind that's quite like this visually. No, no. Yeah, so we're going on to Soylent Green. One of the more famous films we're covering tonight, I think. Mm. Um the world is burning, a perpetual summer caused by the greenhouse effect in which the coldness of winter is but a distant memory, perhaps even a myth. The oceans are dying, food is scarce, the human population enormous. 40 million people live in New York City, which is so expanded in size that it now borders Philadelphia. Jobs are there, living space seemingly more so. But there are still rich white guys exploiting the rest, so it's all good. Mm-hmm. One of these rich white guys is murdered, though it's made to look like a burglary gone wrong. Assigned to investigate is Charlton Heston's detective Frank Thorne. Thorne is a corrupt police officer, a thug, a thief, who demeans women, particularly the living prostitutes at the dead guy's apartment building, using the particularly unpleasant epithet that such women are referred to by, furniture. He also takes sexual advantage of these women. Though, naturally, she falls for him, because what's not to love? <laughs> this man is the hero. As an aside, I don't know if this is a comment in the world. This is set in New York, which had a notoriously corrupt police force in the 1970s. Or maybe we're once again in creepy bastard territory? Uh, when he's not being a thoroughly unpleasant person, though, Thorne is, at least notionally, a detective. And with the help of his book, Edward G. Robinson's Saul Roth, he attempts to find out why one of the directors of the Soylent Corporation was bumped off, how a bodyguard can afford $150 a jar of strawberry jam, and why people are putting pressure on his boss to stop him. Thorne is eventually led to a government suicide centre and learns the truth about the connection between these, 
the city recycling facilities and the miracle highly nutritious foodstuff Soylent Green. The last time I watched this I recall enjoying it a great deal more. This time, frankly, it was a struggle to watch. I've never been a great fan of Charlton Heston and I find it all too easy to believe him in this uh, as this lazy criminal. Even if that is in fact good, just good acting. And as far as that goes, he's fine. It's hard to be invested in such an unpleasant person, even if he's trying to bring to light something quite so shocking. In the end, Silent Green's famous conceit is far more enduring and interesting than the film itself, which largely seeks to squander it, being far more interested as it is in chases and murders and misogyny. There's barely a hint in the first half of the film about what's going on, and when Saul discovers the truth, he, well, he immediately decides to get himself euthanised, leaving no note for anyone and any delay to Thorn, and the truth would have died with him. So, well done, that a fine upstanding citizen. It's easy to imagine a reframing of this film producing a vastly superior product, because the idea of trying to keep the truth of a dying world from the population and a drastic, stomach-turning and desperate solution to the food problem being stumbled upon and then investigated is compelling. Sadly, Richard Fleischer's film doesn't seem all that interested in it. Soylent Green is disappointing. <laughs> it's a few tweaks away from being the plot of Interstellar, isn't it? Um, it's, I, I'd seen this a while back. I recalled thinking it was alright then. I watched it through this time. I thought it was alright. Um <laughs> Not really changed my opinion all that much. Uh, yes, the, the kind of inherent misogyny is—it's it, kind of—it it doesn't get away with it, but it is sort of woven into its actual world. So it, 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 there's an in-universe sort of sensible explanation for it. It's not particularly pleasant, but then I suppose it never is. And uh, yeah, I suppose come back to some sort of uh, analysis of exactly what uh, prostitution entails in a world where you're more interested in space than money for a lot of things. Um, mm. There's there's lots of interesting little world building bits thrown in here that came from the book. Like, things like you know space being at such a premium, like and that does lead to some you know really quite interesting shots. Like you know I'm trying to get down the stairs and it's full of bodies and all that kind of stuff. And there's, yeah. there, there's bits here and there that that I really like. There's like a couple of scenes, maybe like four or five out of it, I think are really great scenes, and the rest of the thing, the linking bit's just sort of fine. And um, <laughs> it's, it's, I found it enjoyable enough. It, it, it's hard to watch it these days, knowing the knowing the reveal at the end. It makes it sort of difficult to watch the rest of it without kind of wishing they would start skipping forward to the points where they actually get to, the, get to um, understanding where this, uh, this the revelation is going to come from. There's a few little hints of it that it kind of builds up. Like I, I like the uh, the kind of completely shell shocked reaction of the priest that the, uh, the rich guy's told and things like that. Yeah, but that's a, that's one of the, like the only bits though. It's like yeah, there's, there's, there's no more near enough of it. Yeah, yeah, it's like because. You get to the point where you can go another 20 minutes of the film and it's never mentioned again, you kind of forget that that's happened. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so by no means perfect. Given the way the world's going, it's not all... It's it's a dystopia, but it seems like it might actually be happening. So, you know, it's got that bit of uh, prophecy for it. Uh, doesn't seem to have got much better in the intervening uh, decades, but... It's the least complex, I think, of all of these films that we've spoken about um, uh, it probably has the least amount to say, uh, which makes it the one of the least interesting films. Um, but even so, I liked it well enough. Um, it's all right, but uh, I can't be all that excited about it. This, probably more than anything else we're covering tonight, is a B movie. Yes, um, and 
carries a lot of the trappings that often come with that. And as I said, I really did enjoy it more the first time I watched it. This time, I was much more sensitive to, well, how sleazy a character the supposed hero is. Yeah. Um, and there's no beating about the bush from the first time he appears, more or less. Um, oh, no, not quite the first time. The first time you see him in a wee bit of relationship with Saul Roth, because they're, they're having to live together as a tiny apartment because there's nowhere else to live. Hmm. Uh, but then he goes to the, the murder scene and immediately just starts ripping everything off. Mm-hmm. Steals everything he can get his hands on, is horrible to people. Got, oh, good, corrupt police officers. Yeah, they're always fun. <laughs> but... Yes, I was, I was saying that bit of a struggle, but I think perhaps, I don't know, because the Tarkovsky stuff is sort of kind of at a higher level, I think, but this is one of the more interesting ideas, and it just it doesn't feel like it has that's anything interesting with it. Unlike most of the other films, this has interesting ideas, but only hints at them as, as a way to embellish a fairly standard investigative Thriller, yeah. uh, whereas the other films, certainly the Tarkovsky Cuff, is purely interested in those higher ideas and is going after them full throated, and that makes it a, something of a that makes Silent Green perhaps a bit easier to to digest. It's giving you a, a fairly standard beaten potatoes with a little bit of um, world building flavouring spiced on it. Whereas a lot of the other ones are just really it's all about the world and the uh, the higher concepts of it, and that's perhaps it's certainly more difficult to digest than the easier meal that Silent Green presents. I think that, that's a start churning pun, if ever there was, Scott. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah well, it's because maybe the invasion of the body snatchers is a bit different, but I think perhaps apart from that, this is one of the central idea that most people like to be aware of. Mm-hmm. It's it's really kind of caught on I mean, to the point where there are like actual companies called Soylent. Yes. <laughs> somehow thinking that's a good idea and somehow those companies work. <laughs> I don't understand that, but Silicon Valley's a weird place. And it's all came out of there. I'm pretty sure they're from Silicon Valley. They have that feel about them, Soylent, don't they? Yes. Um, anyway, uh, so it's got this, this central idea, the whole Soylent and Greenish people thing. It seems to have really caught on. It really stayed in sort of the public consciousness and pop culture. And it's why, in particular, I put this film in, because like, that central idea had stayed, except I'm watching it, I'd forgotten quite how much it isn't the central idea. Yes. It's an afterthought almost. (laughs) And again, it's science fiction would absolutely be the place to do this. And this is the sort of science fiction that's not hugely far-fetched. Yeah. It was set, it's a 1973 film set in 1999. Again, you just go a wee bit further forward and it it doesn't feel that far-fetched given the, the constant talk of um, crisis of global warming and food production and all those things. Yeah. That nothing is happening quite so bad as this yet, but it's a, a constant and fairly reasonable fear. Yeah. So that's interesting. You've got, um, so you've got problems of the overcrowding and the heat and the lack of water, and then you've got all these people who are dying. So how do you dispose of the bodies? Plus there's no food, the oceans are dying. So all these things could be feasibly happening and soon. So, and you could approach it in a couple of different ways. You could approach it like that it's just like an evil corporation doing this to make money, or that it's someone's desperate attempt to keep the population of the world fed. Uh, there's so, so many ways to approach this idea to, to explore the ethics of it, mm-hmm. which immediately think, well, no, it's disgusting, it's cannibalism, that's not on. Even worse when it's like <laughs> unwitting, but at the same time, it's like, 
Yeah, but everybody will die if we don't <laughs> do this because the food supplies that short. There's a potential there to bring up some really interesting ideas and ethical ideas and things like that that nobody's ever going to want to do that. Yeah. I doubt it would ever come to that, but you know, that's, that's just interesting speculation. And the film's like, yeah, well, um, we'll do that later. We'll have our, one of our um, characters so bothered by it that he's like, I'll not even bother telling anyone what I've found out. <laughs> I'll just die now. Okay, thanks. Fine moral citizen you are, but mostly it's just um, want to see Charlton Heston being creepy with some women for a while. Oof, the seeds are turn my stomach, but more so than the silent green thing, actually. <laughs> yeah, uh, so what I'm saying on this viewing, I mean, it's probably worth watching again because of the impact that it's the whole silent green idea had that, that it's still known now. Um, in this view, and I'm just frustrated by the the lack of capturing the opportunity to do something interesting. Yeah. Right. So, in quite a cluster of films right from the beginning of the decade, we're going to jump forward a few years to the middle. And the first appearance on film of a certain Mr. David Jones, Scott. Yes, in The Man Who Fell to Earth, where a... A thin white dukish gentleman stumbled down, stumbles down a slag heap in the opening of The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is also a reasonably accurate character summary of the overall film. Uh, said man is, of course, Dave Bowie, here playing Thomas Jerome Newton, at first glance a peculiar gentleman who sets about registering and exploiting a series of advanced technological patents. Although before long, and as is implied by the title, we discover that he is in fact an alien from a planet in the middle of a severe drought. So, aided by Buck Henry's patent lawyer, Oliver Farnsworth, he sets up a company to build high-tech contraptions, making a ton of money that he then sinks into research into space travel. Basically, Elon Musk's life story then. Uh, he's looking for a way to develop a way to ship water back to his planet, but there are forces out to stop him. Ultimately, it's implied to be the government, who get wind of his true nature after a tip-off from Rip Torn's uh, Dr Nathan Bryce, a roguish employee who had become something of a confidant to Newton. However, this only happens after Newton has worn the mask of humanity long enough to start becoming human and falling prey to some of the same ills that have fallen many of us. He meets and forms a romantic relationship with Candy Clark as Mary Lou, who in introduces him to the concepts like alcohol and television, to which Newton becomes addicted, which is more thoroughly encouraged by his captors in the final stretch of the film. Now, there is, on paper, not an awful lot of narrative to stretch over the two and a quarter, I think, hours of film. Have we mentioned that films were paced very differently in the 70s? Uh, But... As with a good few of the films on tonight's roster, the narrative is largely a crowbar to get into the character's brain. In the main, uh, this is a study of alienation, quite literally, I suppose, and isolation. And there's a pretty incredible turn from Bowie, although there's an argument that he's playing a very thinly veiled version of himself at the time in this film. Uh, There's a few aspects that haven't aged very well. The the alien planet's train system in particular, although to be scrupulously fair, I'm sure even at the time it looked like a rejected Boltswood primary school production cast-off. However, the man developed Earth is not particularly concerned with any of the special effects or the falling to earth part of things and is rather more focused on the man himself and how that reflects on wider humanity. That, it seems, is more or less ageless to her eternal discredit. So that, combined with a striking visual style, some complex characters who swing between sympathetic and obnoxious, a solid performances and an intriguingly enough unfolding narrative makes this well worth catching up with, have you not already done so? Yes, I quite like this. Um, 
I've seen this a couple of times each time. It's, it's never been a film that's you know absolutely blown me away. It's never been like my top tier film list or anything like that. But I've always appreciated it every time I watched it. Um, it's got a nice visual style. It's got you know some good performances from people that I like an awful lot um, and the central concept of the, the kind of humanity and creaching and corrupting this fella is uh, something that's always kind of uh, nothing that's really aged uh, particularly uh, poorly it seems to be uh, relevant at pretty much any point you could actually hope to watch it so yes uh, yeah definitely worth taking a look at if you haven't done so already I hadn't seen this before um, I was really quite looking forward to it and mm. I was aware to we talked. What was that? Something we covered fairly recently, I think, where David Bowie must have been in it. And I remember saying at the time, I had a pretty good hit rate for David Bowie. I don't think I'd seen him in any film that I hadn't liked him in. Labyrinth, maybe? That could be it. Yeah. That would make sense. It's a fairly recent David Bowie thing. Yeah, that record's broken now, unfortunately. Mm. <laughs> I just didn't get on with this. And I'm not sure why. I mean, I can see those themes in there but I just don't think I cared about anyone or anything (laughs) I couldn't really get a hook into this film it's annoying honestly this is a frustration I know this but it feels like to be normal people and not remember things (laughs) I can't remember why I did like it but I I say I I have been so ludicrously short of sleep in the last week or two that I I think it's actually affecting my memory Uh, (laughs) I don't know, and I can I can close my eyes and picture pretty much any scene in the film, no problem. But I can't really remember any feelings about it because I don't really think I had all that many. Yes, <laughs> I think the whole turn of like him suddenly being captured and imprisoned that kind of bothered me because it didn't feel like it made a lot of sense. Like somebody gave them a tip off, but why would anybody think that? Uh, anyway, that's. Um, yeah, there's a sort of setup where the, uh, the doctor's kind of getting gotten wind of it and takes some like, infrared or X-ray photographs of him, which presumably reveals alien anatomy and all that sort of stuff. So it's, yeah, it is set up, that. but it's not. You could you could quite easily, if you walked out of the room for like twenty seconds, you'd have missed that setup entirely, which would make the last hour a bit confusing. I would think. Yes, yes. I think I must have. I must have honestly. It was like. I had like a wee 10 second micro sleep or something because <laughs> I remember I'm taking the photograph but I never actually questioned why and, I'm, and I just thought he was interested but I think my attention must have just wandered at that yeah. wrong point but I don't know there's yeah I, I can absolutely see all the themes in there that you're talking about Scott and more it was like alienation and like the corruption of humans and I guess there's loneliness too mm-hmm See, there's all that kind of parallel story of, like, his family are dying, but I was never quite sure whether he's a jackass for basically just abandoning them, mm. or whether maybe they're actually already dead, and that's kind of, in the past, it's just, it's juxtaposed differently. Not that it really matters, it just <laughs> changes how you think about the character a wee bit. So I can see all those films in there, just, it left me cold. And it's quite interesting to look at, it's... The colours are quite interesting, even if 1970s decor is beyond hideous. Yes. <laughs> uh, that hotel room that he's in, um, and there's that room with like the paint of the monkeys on the wall and stuff, and I think it's, I can appreciate this is nicely shot, but what they're shooting is hideous, please take care of it. Yes. <laughs> I honestly don't know what to say about this film. Um, it didn't grab me. Fair enough, I guess not every film needs to, but... Uh... 
Yeah, as I say, it's, it's never really one of my top tier films, but I, I do revisit it now and again, every every decade or so. And it's still, it's, I still find enough in here to like. Yes, I, I I like it well enough, but I wouldn't ever claim that it's going to be in my top films list. No, so I'm, I'm almost tempted to go back and watch it again, given that I know that I've missed at least one thing because I <laughs> I, was, I wasn't even awake enough to to wondering why I used to. I remember taking the photographs mm-hmm. that you hide in the that wee panel. I've never questioned why. Yes. I, that I perhaps was just half asleep through that entire film. Um, <laughs> hmm, I, I may actually have to go and look at that again yeah. because I know just found that it sounded like an absolute ill-informed moron. So I don't like that. Yes, it's, it's not the most um, well signposted bit of plot development <laughs> that it has in it. So it's, it is understandable. But yes, if you, if you do watch it, I do recommend that you stay awake. <laughs> Stay awake for films. That's table stakes. That is. I'm going to write that one down somewhere. (laughs) That sounds like it might be useful, Scott. Yes. But of course, if you do go to sleep, there's always the danger you may be replaced by a pod person, which is exactly the sort of precarious predicament that you find yourself in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Wow. An actual segue, Scott. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. We're not generally fans of remakes around here. But when a film considered in many places to be amongst the best remakes ever also happens to fit our topic for the month, it seems worth taking a look. That remake is, of course, 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Based on Jack Finney's novel, The Body Snatchers, and first filmed in 1956. Amoeba-like beings leave their planet and drift through space, falling on, air, falling on the Earth in rain, and particularly on San Francisco, where scientist Elizabeth Driscoll Brooke Adams picks one of the unusual flowers that have grown from the amoebic rain. She takes it home, puts it on a glass next to the bed and goes to sleep. When her dentist boyfriend Jeffrey, Art Hindle, begins acting very oddly the next morning, the last, or at least seventh or eighth thing she's going to think of to explain, to explain it is that the flower created an entirely new identical body, transferred all of his memories over, dissolved the old human body and left a perfect replica simply missing emotion. <laughs> More fool her then, as that is exactly what happened. <laughs> Though she's definitely aware that something is wrong, as Jeffrey is no longer Jeffrey. Alike, yet not alike. She enlists the help of her friend, City Health Inspector Matthew Bennell, Donald Sutherland, who had first asked her to see his friend, the famed psychiatrist David Kibner, Leonard Nimoy, and his weird wee leather thing, that I assume is a visual clue that he's a rotter. <laughs> what was that? I've seen... Isn't that a sort of... More like a sketching uh, glove? Which I guess maybe would be using if he was signing a lot of things. It stops your... Because uh, it was covering his pinky, right? So it was... Uh, I, I don't I know. He's middle, no, he's his middle two fingers. It kind of looked like those big guards used for archery, but flimsier and on the wrong side. But uh, Yes, um, then... No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Because he wears it a lot. Uh, sort of strange affectation. and I, I couldn't work out what it was. Maybe it's really obvious and I'm just being stupid, but I had no idea what that was for. Maybe he just had sore fingers. Anyway, I, I, I may be straying again. Maybe it's a complex allegory for something. Fingers. <laughs> yes. For fingers? No, wait. No, I've got nothing. My brain is not functioning. Kipner persuades Elizabeth that her feelings were a manifestation of a desire to leave the relationship, which she buys for about three seconds. (laughs) Numerous encounters, including seeing a full-size Jeff Goldblum replica, 
key math units within to what is going on. And they try to warn people, only to realise it's far, far too late for that. So, Scarper it is. Run away! <laughs> Given its themes, homogeneity, paranoia, conspiracy, metaphorically sleeping while bad things happen, inevitability of change, and a whole bunch more, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is open to a multitude of interpretations. A criticism at the time, in time, was that it was laughably literal, which is frankly baffling as it could be about so many things. The 1956 version was considered by some to be about McCarthyism, and by some others to be about the loss of autonomy, both in the US and the USSR. The 1978 adaptation could also be about at least some of that, or about city life, or about Watergate according to some interpretations, and again, numerous others. You could even, without much squinting, interpret it as nature being bad for you. (laughs) The truth is, of course, that it's about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends. It's also a personal statement about the pod people themselves. Hey Benel, try getting a reservation at Dorsia now, you (laughs) stupid health inspector. (laughs) Because Invasion of the Body Snatchers is so potentially broad, I have little interest in finding something specific. I am, instead, happy to simply enjoy the film as a well-produced, well-acted sci-fi horror. Special effects are used sparingly, but when they are, they're quite effective. Donald Sutherland staving in the head of his own replica is a particularly creepy image. And it's interesting how eerie someone simply pointing and making an odd noise can be, (laughs) given certain context. Sutherland is, in particular is great and his reaction to someone being knocked down may actually be the most natural and realistic I've ever heard. That may seem such an odd and oddly <laughs> specific thing to mention but it really struck me. <laughs> but the core cast are all really good. Perhaps not essential viewing but really quite enjoyable. Approved. Yes, um, I guess, again I, I like this well enough. I don't have anything particularly complex or meaningful to say about it. In a way I... I this has fallen into the same bucket as a uh, Dawn of the Dead for me, and it's one of these films that gets held up as oh, it's an allegory for this, that, and the other. And a lot of the times I think about it, and I think maybe it is just a film about space amoebas and pod people, and <laughs> not really about anything more complex than it is. I think it is. I think it's one of these rare films that's so simple, uh, but seems to be giving people enough interpretation to put any kind of inter- uh, spin on it they like. And I, th- I think maybe it's uh, it's getting a reputation for having meaning that does not actually warranted in the text of it but um, it's fun enough to watch and Donald Sutherland's really good in it what else can I say about it not all that much I, I enjoyed it well enough um, I, I saw this decades ago and I suspect I may never go back to it again uh, it's the better remake this was this was remade relatively recently with Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman is that right the, the invasion that was called that. yeah I think I think that was a remake and it was Okay, it was also fine. I think I've seen the fifty-eight version. It was fine too. Um, <laughs> it's 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 a it's a good concept for a film. It has some interesting sort of freaky moments. It's probably, for my money, t- taking a lot more from the horror playbook than it does science fiction. Um, mm-hmm. at, at least in terms of all the way it's actually structured as a film and all that stuff. It's way more um, horror uh, based than it is science fiction. But. Regardless, it's still it's an enjoyable, rip-roaring little yarn, and uh, it's worth spending some time with if you haven't done so already. Um, I'm not sure. This is probably the best of the versions of them, I would say. It's probably the most rounded of them. Um, but uh, yes, it's it's worth a look. Um, I can't get all that excited about it, but I did enjoy watching it, so yes. Yeah, give it a go. 
Yeah, so I just see this um, not as like one of these films full of meaning. It's just it's a solidly entertaining film mm-hmm. with an interesting, scary idea that people could be replaced. Mm. And uh, yeah, it, as it and you've said too, it's it's just so broad yeah. in terms of the things that it, it really could apply to anything. Yes, so that people trying to read stuff into this, it's like nah, because like. The idea of, of being asleep while bad things happen, that could apply to much anything in the world. Yes. You know, there is no <laughs> there, there's no strong thing there. Is and especially it's like, you know, it's a fun film. And also uh, is perhaps um the source of one of the single greatest frames of cinema ever. Yes. <laughs> which is that very famous frame of uh, Donald Sutherland with his mouth open and his hand out pointing. Yes, but will almost certainly be the album art for this uh, this podcast episode. But yes, well, I'm a top so. Yes. That or the Daft Punk helmet. I think it's between those two. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, yeah. There's not really a lot to explore in that. Other than like, yep, it's fun. Yes. Um, well, though, uh, if we're talking about things to explore and interpretation and potential depth and meaning. Boy, do we have a doozy for you to finish on? <laughs> yes, another uh, Tarkovsky film, Stalker, and I'm glad we've kept the nice, straightforward, easy-to-recap one to the end. Uh, yes, the, this manages the impressive trick of being massively more oblique than the first Tarkovsky film we talk about, and Solaris is hardly a transparently obvious piece of work at the best of times. Yes, so... Something strange is going on in Russia after something strange fell from the sky into a now cordoned off area called the zone. What we laughingly call reality holds little purchase there, with time and space seeming to wrap around itself, perhaps to protect the room at the heart of it, where a force of some description may or may not grant you the, your truest desire in a geniesque fashion if you're able to make it there past the many dangers that await. Two people who want to make the trip, who we will come to know only as the writer, Anatoly Solitsyn, and the professor, Nikolai Grinko, one wanting to come to challenge himself and to find inspiration for a great work, and the other seemingly to investigate and win a Nobel Prize. They are led by Alexander Kaidanovsky's titular twitchy stalker as a guide as they attempt to pick their way pa- first past the military guards and then the dangers of the zone itself, which, if we're being critical here, are rather more frequently told than shown. However... And that they're basically shown never and told all the time. Yes. <laughs> However, much like the man who fell to earth, the narrative and the setting are less of a story in and of themselves as they are a crowbar to enter the minds of the characters, leaving us with a film that owes more to waiting for Godot or such as No Exit than most of its genre stablemates. The bulk of this film is, well, arguments about a variety of philosophical and psychological concepts that I'm not well enough equipped to be telling you about. Certainly not after one viewing, and certainly not after the kind of month I've had. Uh, I may have to punt on whether or not this, whether or not this is a film that I actually like but it's a film that is certainly, most certainly intriguing and despite a highly esoteric nature, kept me engaged with it over the two and a half-ish hours that it unfolds over uh, on both the narrative and technical levels the plot and characters I alluded to are often impenetrable, uh, but so are a lot of the other details, like the choice made for the non-zone footage to be weirdly sepia-toned and odd-looking and as opposed to the in-zone footage being conventionally coloured 
you know, my, my thoughts kind of peter out in this film. I've, I've not had the time or the capacity to fully process it yet. And likely if you came to me next year, I still wouldn't be exactly sure what I thought about it. Still, uh, that's rare enough in and of itself to warrant a recommendation. It's plainly a very challenging work that is not taking it very easy on an audience. So it's perhaps not one for casual viewing, uh, but it is worth making an appointment with you if you've any interest in... Uh, I was going to say science fiction, but it's not really about science it's fiction. It's, science it's, fiction. It's, it's, it's that as a lever to to explore some human conditions, and uh, it's, it's a really interesting example of filmmaking. If you have any interest in the art of filmmaking and the potential of it, is certainly uh, should be on your list. It's God, it's such a strange film. I couldn't, I'm not entirely sure if I could say I enjoyed it, but yes, as I say, it's certainly not like anything. Uh, I'd seen before, with the possible exception of Solaris. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, that alone makes it interesting enough to watch. Uh, so, in this uh, current cinema landscape, it's well worth uh, putting on for a bit of a, a bit of flavour in your diet. Yeah, this one, I don't know. Um, whereas Solaris, I wouldn't say that I enjoyed. Again, wouldn't say that I did not enjoy. Um, and certainly there's enough in there that I, I definitely want to watch it again. This one I really didn't enjoy. Yeah, Solaris is much easier to get the gist of. Uh, yeah. It's easier to see what it's going for and what it's saying, whereas this one's, yeah, it's it's a lot messier on a number of levels. <laughs> yeah, see, it feels like there are bits and you're trying to create atmosphere, and it absolutely failed to create any atmosphere. The... Um, in terms of at least tension or stuff, that mm. um, it's a very, for the most part, a really weirdly static film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's four three, um, or maybe five four in aspect ratio. It's quite square, which is quite unusual too. And it's um, a lot of like a lot of shots are just a camera locked off. Yes, and then seeing maybe like a really empty, it's an empty field for like half the film. And so it's quite static, but again, that's that's quite clear. But it's the whole sort of contemplative, meditative idea. Yeah, I think it's going to force you to to think differently. And I'm first really annoyed by this being considered a science fiction film. There's not one single piece of science fiction in this film, apart from maybe the final shot. Yeah, <laughs> they keep because they keep on talking about the room, this magical room, and uh, but there, nothing happens. Well, first of all, they don't go into the room unless possibly you were in the room the whole time, which is what some interpretations of this film are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's... I mean, it's certainly the sort of film there's a shed load to talk about if you really wanted to get into it. Mm-hmm. Like the philosophies and ideas. And again, like Slars, it's a lot... It's not so much what the film itself is doing, it's what the characters are saying. Yes. And they're reading their philosophies and stuff. Whereas in Solaris, I kind of... Um, uh, bought it sounds like they're trying to sell me something but it's like I could see where they're coming from Solar. So a lot of the time in Stalker, the things they're saying I was I just I simply did not agree with at all. I feel though that if you're religious you might get a completely different experience from this than I would get. And so the way it talks about it, there's a lot of kind of spiritual kind of stuff in it. But yeah as I was sorry I, I'm sort of all over the place. I'll go back to what I was saying about the science fiction portion of it first. Um, they talk about there's the zone being this really weird place and there's all these things happening, but not one thing happens until a, a hawk magically appears for a second and disappears, and that's pretty much the only weird thing that happens in the whole film. Mm-hmm. Because 
they sort of they circle around themselves at one point, but it's like yeah, they could have just got lost. It's that was not compelling. Yeah. Um, so they're not. Con- the film absolutely does not sell to me in any way, shape, or form. The danger of this place, the fact that it's mysterious or strange or something like yeah, they walked through a field and then they walked through a tunnel. There was that bit where one guy walked into a different field and felt a bit funny and came back. So yeah. there is that. <laughs> so I can't. I, I kind of frustrated because it, it felt like it was telling me it was weird without in any way showing me. And I'm like, oh, yeah. this is a film. Show me. Yes. And like, there's a, a weird propensity for people to just have a wee kip on some wet ground or something directly <laughs> in a river. I, I don't know if that means something, or they're meant to be affected by the zone, or they're morons, or what. But, uh, I thought that was odd. I don't know. It's it's obvious. It's absolutely not a science fiction film. And then it's just this place is weird, but nothing happens. I don't know about this film at all. <laughs> I've like I, I got to the end of it. And I was like, right, straight to Google. Yes. <laughs> What was Stalker about? Because I'm, I, was, I was at a loss. I'm like, I'm really talking to I can handle anything. I can, I can see some of the themes and stuff. And again, the dialogue that the professor and the the writer in particular were saying, I'm like, okay, I kind of see what you're saying. I'm calling bull on that. I think you're, what you're talking is absolute nonsense. But okay, if that's your that's your idea, I'd look up and I looked up some interpretation and stuff. I'm like, yeah, nope. Um, and I looked at some other interpretations and thought yeah I shouldn't have gone to Reddit for this that was a mistake back out <laughs> um, I want to like this more because I liked the contemplative idea I liked the way it looked Yeah, it took me a while to warm to that though at first I was like would you move the camera please I'm, I'm getting bored of this and I kinda, then I, I got hooked into like what it was doing and why and again, it didn't test my patience. I didn't find it as interesting as Solaris, but it didn't test my patience, even though, again, it's pushing three hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's quite a large chunk of that three hours is people lying down in some wet grass. Yeah. <laughs> this one, Solaris, I would definitely come back to, though. Stalker, I don't know. And once again, I'm absolutely not seeing this whole masterpiece thing. But I guess what Tarkovsky has done is it's made me think quite a lot about his film maybe that's the point yes um, I mean I think this and Solaris are definitely the ones that I've had the most brain cycles consumed with um, since watching them so that yeah. that is probably a good thing uh, it's, it's, it's it's very difficult whether that makes it a masterpiece or not I don't know it's not the obvious uh, choice for me but um, yeah, I, I found enough to like in both of them that I, I would definitely go back and, and give another run through and see if I could make a bit more sense of it with a a bit more foreknowledge of what's happening in it but uh, yes uh, yeah. interesting everything else yeah I mean I, I feel that I don't really have the necessary tools mm. to do, as I said I'm trying to acquire these tools or at least hone them to, to really fully get into this and this is the film where I want to Sometimes you see a film and people they see all sorts of meanings and stuff, and it's like, yeah, no, this film's clearly rubbish. Um, <laughs> it doesn't merit it. Whereas this, I think, does. And I'm vaguely frustrated. I'm vaguely frustrated myself uh, with this like caveat again. I should be ludicrously tired uh, to the point where I, 
without an exaggeration, I've averaged maybe three hours of sleep a night for the last ten days. Mm-hmm. So it's not really the best position to be tackling a film like this from. So I'm also a bit frustrated that yeah, maybe I'm not getting more of this, but at the same time I'm frustrated the film's not giving me just a bit more. Yes. It seems a bit too obfuscated. I don't know, it's certainly like Solaris, I've not seen much else like it. I kinda tempted to go and check out Andre Rublev now. Mm. Another Tarkovsky film. Another one also been called his masterpiece, so I wish people would make up their mind. What I will say though is talking of interpretations and stuff. There are seem to be many interpretations of that last scene of where Monkey, the stalker's daughter, is using telekinesis to move glasses. Um and then a lot of people saying, Oh, is it is it telekinesis or is it the trains moving the glasses? But no, it's telekinesis. Yes. Why is there any debate about this? Yes. It's really obvious. <laughs> because the trains come later and move in a different way and they weren't moving anything else. And no, it's like she's moving glasses with her mind. It's clearly telekinesis. There was no I don't understand how there's any yes. confusion about this. This is really weird. Of all the in differing interpretations and of things that happen in this film, that's the most baffling one because of the, well, no, it's clearly this. <laughs> yes. But, uh, this is unambiguous. <laughs> yeah. Um I would like to come to some sort of conclusion about this and these films we've covered, other than just say, yeah, that's your lot, we're done, bye. And I'm struggling. Uh, right, wait, wait, I'll, allow me, allow me. Right, that's your lot, we're done, bye. <laughs> oh, I will say, it's like, okay, why we went to the 70s? The 70s, it's just, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on all over the world in, in film mm. um, for all sorts of genres. Like, there's not much that immediately occurs to me from, say, the 80s or 90s that even approaches anything of the stuff we've done in here, like of the better stuff anyway, that doesn't feel... They tackle it differently. There's nothing that feels quite so esoteric or so thought-provoking or so distinctive. Yeah, I can't think of anything that's going for the uh, the higher concepts the way that they did in the 70s, certainly in the, the science fiction genre. And arguably, I don't think we've ever really got back to it. There's been a few odds and ends here and there from all the decades you could put through. But um, yeah, if you did a another science fiction one that was basically the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, all as one episode, I don't think you'd get as many interesting and different films as you did with this one episode. No, I don't so, think yeah. so. I mean, and there's, there's some earlier science fiction, which I will, we'll get to at some point, and this is how it started, was I wanted to just do a, a selection of classic stuff because I wanted to look at Metropolis... Then going up towards like the day the is still up towards Solomon Green and stuff. And there was just so much interesting stuff in the seventies. So there is interesting stuff before, but again, it doesn't feel like it was ever this thought provoking or this deep or this esoteric or strange or high concept or it's like everything kind of like peaked in the seventies and then it's just sort of fallen off after that. Yeah, it was a, a very brief Cambrian explosion that. Uh <laughs> a very interesting, a very rapid die-off after the 79, yes. I mean, maybe we're wrong, maybe there's something we're missing, and if there's something particular that occurs to you, please let us know. Yes. Would, um, tell us if we're wrong and why, like what films we should look at. I, mean, I know there, there are all sorts of trippy science fiction stuff that's been done over years, and um, you have stuff like Beyond the Black Rainbow and things, but there's just there's nothing that immediately occurs to me that quite matches up to the 
this sort of level of ambition. Yeah. Um, and at least ambition that somehow achieved yes. what it was aiming for. <laughs> so that's, that's maybe a crucial part. Uh, there's lots of films that have had ambition and they've just fallen completely flat. Yes, yes. So do, yes, if you do have any of that, please let us know. Through your, I'll give you a choice of methods then. Um, you can do it on Twitter, that's at FuzzOnFilm. You can do through us through the emails, that's podcast at com or Facebook at facebook.com slash FuzzOnFilm. And uh, yes, we'd be delighted to hear any suggestions or any feedback you have on this or anything else film-related. Uh, yes, I guess that'll wrap us up for the night, unless you've anything else you want to add. I think that would be a terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) So, no. We're back with you in uh, 10 days with another episode, and until that time, take care of yourself and each other. Ta-da! Bye-bye!